Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, we are, we've got a bunch of things we're going to talk about today, but I think, you know, in some ways, the overriding theme is that we are, we are moving into the Democrats' sort of season of discontent right now. And sometimes those seasons end up being like an interlude in, in the unfolding of a drama where other good things come into the future uh, or not. Right. Um, and uh, I think we, th- there's one of the things we want to talk about is there's just all of this collective mix of uncertainty about what's going on with this infrastructure thing. I mean, at, at some level, I mean, we had a, we did a briefing yesterday with this guy, Adam Gentleson. Uh, if you're, if you're a, a, a um, a member you can you can i posted it in the editor's blog you can watch it i i i found it very informative i think you will too uh you know what's going on with the filibuster is anything going to happen on that front what's going on with infrastructure i think there's part of it is just kind of like like literally what is going on like what is the plan not like you don't have a good plan but like what what are we even talking about and uh people on the left of the party are starting to say like you know what we're not going to leave this just up to like Kirsten Cinema and and Joe Manchin and like John Tester, we're we're here too, and like you're you're not going to go off in a room with five other Republicans and and kind of you know decide this. And um, one thing that this is coming down to, something we we've we have discussed, is that for a variety of reasons, one possible plan is you take a bunch of stuff that maybe you could get Republicans to agree on. Make that into a hard infrastructure bill. Get it as high as you can. Have get some, you know, get some Republican buy-in. Whether you can get ten senators, I think, is still very questionable. But let's say you can. Um, you get that, and then that kind of checks for the for the Democrats who who need that box check. That checks your bipartisan cooperation and moving past the era of gridlock stuff. And then you take everything else and you pile it into a reconciliation bill and and. That's how you do the rest, and that's how it all comes together. And what is happening now is uh, a number of Democrats who are not in the one of those bipartisan gangs are saying, "Wait a second, maybe we're going to give like let the Republicans, you know, get get credit for like all the kind of the, the the good stuff, the stuff that is you know sort of broadly popular, doesn't include tax cut, you know, tax hikes." And then everything else we carry on our own, but maybe you're not going to be there for that. Maybe you, Joe Manchin, you, Kirsten Sinema, are going to kind of decide you're done, and then we don't get that. So everybody's kind of, that whole thing is getting a little weird there. And at the same time, we have this, uh, there was a story out today that Democrats are no longer pushing to get those translator notes from uh, President Trump's and Vladimir Putin's notorious 
Helsinki Summit back in 2018. And uh, Gregory Meeks, who's the chair of the sort of the relevant oversight committee, said, you know, Biden's looking forward, not back. You know, that one phrase that like is, is like fingernails on a chalkboard for Democrats. And so everything is kind of mad and uncertain on the accountability front, too. Now, one part of this that I don't think people are figuring in is that Joe Biden doesn't have to request those documents or seek to get those documents. He owns those documents. He can call up and get and get a look at him this afternoon. Maybe he already has. So that's kind of one wrinkle there that I don't think people are figuring in. Although that doesn't really make the problem go away, or you know, it's 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 not an issue. So anyway, we're going to talk about all those things. We are going to also uh, we're going to uh, uh, answer uh, a good crop of your uh, reader emails. Before we get to that, let me remind you: experience the freshest way to cold brew the summer with Grady's Cold Brew Kit. The ultra-convenient all-in-one kit comes packed with Grady's famous New Orleans-style coffee blend of 100% Arabica beans imported and imported French chicory. No need for any equipment, just add water to the reusable spigot pouch to brew 36 cups of bold, velvety smooth iced coffee. And the best part, no more waiting in lines or paying coffee shop prices. Grady's pours directly from your fridge and costs less than a buck a cup. Are you ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, so Kate, as we were discussing before we went on air, we're kind of in a, in a, in a bit of a, a um, you know, constrained uh, time for this episode. So we're going to try to burn through a lot of stuff quickly. L- let's start with you're, you're up there on the hill, you know, sometimes metaphorically, often literally, now that COVID is sort of un- unwinding. What's going on in infrastructure? What is your best understanding of what is going on? So where we are in infrastructure is that group sometimes call themselves the G20, you know, they have a bunch of kind of lame names like that, are still hammering out a deal, most of which has not been publicly announced. We just have kind of some key details that have leaked out, including it's about $1.2 trillion over eight years. Um, of that, about $570 billion is new spending. There's, you know, the, the pay for fight that has kind of plagued this whole process persists so far. Things that have been suggested to pay for it, taxing electric cars, uh, tougher enforcement at the IRS, repurposing COVID money um, and creating an infrastructure bank to help loan money to finance new projects. Um, there's also been a bit of a dust step over raising the the gas tax uh, as indexed to inflation, which the White House has pretty much put the kibosh on because that'll they see that as breaking their promise not to tax people making under four hundred thousand dollars. And it also seems like kind of like a, 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 a pretty crafty way for Republicans to insist on something that they, then they will later run against. Hundred percent. Yeah, um, I was in a scrum with Sherrod Brown on the Hill yesterday, and he was kind of saying, you know, this is a Republican tactic as old as time, pretend like they're going to, you know, cooperate on a gas tax and then make Repul- make Democrats eat it later. So now let me ask you one question, because yeah. you said something there about the nominal price tag for this is one point two trillion. Mm-hmm. And then you came back with and five hundred and seventy five hundred and eighty billion of that is new money. Mm-hmm. Now, 
I, I stop you. I know this isn't you doing it. You're repeating kind of what the, you know, mm-hmm. what their presentation is. But when I have seen that in write-ups, I kind of, you know, pull the pull the needle from the phonograph and say, wait a second. <laughs> that sounds to me like that is a $580 billion bill, yeah. not a $1.2 trillion bill. So what is what, what is the disconnect? What 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 is the, all the other stuff that is the bill, but not actually new spending? Right. Well, you know, I think... Um, this is how the Republicans counteroffers have gone. They've kind of put up these these really high top line numbers to make it sound like, you know, we're, we're meeting Democrats halfway. I mean, this was kind of the hallmark of the Shelley Moore Capito stuff. And then you go in and look and, you know, it's only like 200, 300 billion dollars, like a really paltry amount. That's a, a super tiny fraction um, of what the what the Biden administration wants to spend. So, again, like I said, none of these details basically have been released publicly. So we really don't know a lot of what bridges that gap still. But I assume some of that is the clawed back COVID relief money. I would also assume, but this I'm less certain about, the federal government is always spending a fair amount of money on infrastructure roads and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So is is some of this just, oh, let's just kind of take the stuff we were going to just spend as the baseline over the next eight years and include that. And maybe that's a, I don't know if that's another couple hundred billion. I have no idea. But but again, that basic disconnect is so key where on the one hand, they're saying, hey, 1.2 billion. And you hear and you say, well, okay, you know, Biden said 1.7 and 1.2, like, okay, we're in the, we're in the same ballpark. But then you come back with, oh, and half a trillion of that is new money. Right. Like, wait, what? Right. What did I miss? Which has been the persistent problem. Um, So while that kind of percolates behind closed doors largely, now we have some progressive Democrats saying, you know, hang on, you can't count on my vote for this bipartisan bill, which seems like it's has dropped all of its climate provisions um, and, you know, doesn't even begin to cover kind of the human infrastructure piece of things. And they're saying, I think pretty reasonably, we don't want to commit to vote to that until you get Manchin and Cinema committing to then come back to the fold and vote for the reconciliation bill, which is planned to have robust climate proposals and then all the kind of caring economy stuff that that dropped out of this roads and bridges bill. So that's I think Schumer is actually handling it pretty well. He basically came out and said, we're going to do these things on a simultaneous track. Uh, Today, he's meeting with the 11 Democrats on the Senate Budget Committee to get, you know, the the budget vehicle. That's how you pass things on reconciliation. He's getting that started um, and then plans to move on both the reconciliation vehicle and the bipartisan plan, I guess, assuming it doesn't totally fall apart in July. And so how this was presented to me, uh, well, both by uh, some people I was talking about, talking to in the Biden administration and also in that in that briefing with Adam Jenelson that I that I just flagged is I I guess the idea is, you know, you basically are pushing ahead with the rec, you know, the sort of the full reconciliation thing, which if you get there and need to do it, you can just pile every last thing into that. And that is the whole thing. And then you have these bipartisan negotiations going on. And if it ends up that a that everyone can agree on, you know, people from both parties can agree on carving out some significant part of that and doing that on a bipartisan basis, then great. You pull that stuff out of the reconciliation bill. And for a lot of us, they're sort of like, why are, why are we, what, 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 what's the, who cares? But but for some people do care and great. 
Um, the one thing I'll, I'll add here, though, and I don't know how much this has sort of gotten into the mix. One thing I worry about, though, is, I mean, A, clearly progressives are worried about you're going to pass that bipartisan thing and then you're going to decide you're done or it's going to leave all the, you know, every bill. One of the things, again, Jenison making a, everybody knows this, but making, illustrating very clearly Big bills have sort of the sweeteners and the and the you know the the vegetables, right? They all you need to all kind of get them in there to get everybody on board with the easy, you know the easy stuff, every, the things people are excited about. Things are a little harder to lift. And it aside from that possibility that you have moderate Democrats just pull the plug after the bipartisan deal, you also have the possibility that you end up with a situation where Republicans get to crow about, oh, yeah, we were there on infrastructure, that new road. Yeah, we paid, you know, we did that, blah, 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 blah. And Democrats are saddled with a lot of stuff that is very important, but is is in our political world much more demonizable. You know, uh, pay for elderly parents and a lot of, you know, a lot of social spending, basically, and the tax increases. So at a certain level, why are you giving them that benefit? I mean, I hear you and I do get that. But to me, it almost it doesn't really matter because these are things that Democrats do want to pass. And mm-hmm. they're, I think there's you're definitely right. I, I'm sure Republicans will try to demonize it either way. But, you know, I don't think running on if they do raise the corporate tax rate, I don't think that's a bad thing for Democrats. I don't think emphasizing the social spending of this is a bad thing for Democrats. And I think it it just solely, totally all comes down to do, will Manchin and Cinema commit to being there on reconciliation? Right. Because if they can't, if they don't, then I think you run the huge risk of what you're saying. You do all the easy stuff with Republicans, give Republicans, you know, a legislative achievement to run on as well. And then all these massive Democratic proposals and priorities are just like left by the side of the road. And in the process, you've managed to totally piss off the progressives who, at least so far this term, have been the patient ones, kind of the ones yeah. who deal with not getting everything they want because they are prioritizing doing something. Whereas people yep. like Manchin seem pretty content with nothing passing if there's no, you know, quote unquote, bipartisanship attached. So I think right. it is ex- important to kind of extract those promises. And to some degree, you know, maybe Schumer has, maybe this is behind closed doors. But from when I was on the Hill and talking to people, at least the rank and file Democrats have not been aware of such a promise being made. So it seems like it just hasn't been. Yeah. I mean, the the, the most recent stuff that I heard this morning was, you know, uh, Mansion and Cinema are kind of like, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, kind of can't got to see what, you know, got to see how it how it ends up. And at a certain point, and, I, and it does seem like we're getting to that point, you're having, and when I say progressives here, I'm not just talking about like AOC and Bernie. I'm talking about like the bulk of the Democratic caucus mm-hmm. in the Senate saying like, fuck that, man. We're not we're not going to, you know, be like hat in hand to you kind of holding everything, holding everything in your hands. That's just no, we're not going to do that. And, and um, you know, you could even things can go in a lot of weird directions. I could even imagine a situation where they push ahead with something like that and you get something that, you know, if if you get a eh, meh hard infrastructure bill with no commitment to come back, a lot of Democrats bail on that. You get into a weird place. You might even get like a veto threat from the president. Right. So in any case, we, we got a bunch of other stuff we need to talk about. But that's that is it continues to be very weird and continues to have a lot of that thing 
where I fear, and this is just something Democrats always have a hard time with, you're getting to that point where the intricacies and jargon of legislative gobbledygook is becoming the message. Whereas I think the message should be from the president, hey, we need a big infrastructure plan that is going to, you know, rebuild the roads and airports and stuff like that and trains, uh, get us ready for climate change, uh, do this social spending stuff that allows people to remain in the workforce and not be, you know, uh, all day home with their kids or with their parents, all that kind of stuff. And that just needs to happen. And it's really the president's role to say, this isn't just something cool that we came up with. This is really important. We have to do it. And, you know, I'm open to different ideas about how we slice and dice it and how we get there, but it has to happen. And any model that ends up with like $300 billion on, you know, road construction, which historically Congress does every few years, that's just not, that's not what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, we're just, I think, meanwhile, watching the Senate basically try, or Democrats in the Senate try to contort themselves in accordance with the whims of really one person, which is what all this is in service for. So yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, at some point they're either going to have to call his bluff or, you know, Manchin's going to have to say, okay, fine, I'll be there on reconciliation. But I also want to do this bipartisan thing. It's like one of those things has to give at some point. It's also, you know, one, one thing, again, I keep coming back to this Adam Jenelson uh, discussion that we had yesterday. And again, if you're a subscriber, go to the editor's blog, uh, kind of leaf back through. You can find it there. Um, if you're a member, you can, you, you can watch it. One point he made there about with Harry Reid is one of the things Harry Reid was willing to do sometimes is just kind of roll the dice and not roll the dice when you have no idea what's going to happen, but when you have a pretty idea what's good, pretty good idea of what is going to happen. But you say, I don't totally know, but I'm going to push it. And I do think some of this may come down to a situation where with Manchin, you have to bring this up for a vote and say, man, if you want to come up there and leave us hanging with 49 votes and the whole, you know, the whole agenda goes down in flames, we're going to make you do it. We're not going to sit and wait for, for months here. You're going to have to make a decision whether you want to burn it all down. And my sense is that he will not. But, you know, that's high, that's high stakes shit. Right. That's, there's no question. Okay. So now we're going to pivot to uh, another topic that Josh previewed uh, in the opener, which is the subject of accountability for the Trump administration has been in the news a lot recently because of kind of disparate stories that all exist in the same universe. And the kind of theme of them all is Merrick Garland slash Garland's DOJ. Um, you know, protecting the Trump administration is how the spin is, but, you know, sometimes continuing their cases or uh, continuing their policies or not reversing their decisions in a way that I think gives people a real knee-jerk reaction because a lot of this stuff seems just so glaringly out of step with the Biden administration's priorities. So I have a list here and honestly, I, I discovered some new stuff while putting this together. So I'm just going to run down really quickly kind of Here's the stuff that's come out that is why this topic has come up that we're talking about. So like uh, like you said, Josh, we had um, the translator notes. And then you have the news that the Trump DOJ sought phone records of Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee, plus their aides and staff members. Um, you have 
the Biden DOJ continuing to represent Trump's side in uh, the defamation case against E. Jean Carroll, the woman who alleges that Trump raped her in the mid 1990s. Um, Garland, um, I'm saying Garland or DOJ interchangeably here, but uh, keeping most of the the Barr memo, the paper in which Barr decided that no part of the Mueller report um, deserved criminal charges, his decision to keep most of that secret, even after a federal judge is demanding in, in no quiet terms that it be released publicly in full. Um, they're defending a new oil project in Alaska, maintaining support for a new oil pipeline in New Jersey. Um, continuing Trump's policy of using federal courts to try D.C. gun crimes cases instead of the city's courts, which is important because the average sentence from a federal court is twice as long as a D.C. one. And D.C. is currently working to unravel laws that contribute to mass incarceration. They're upholding a few Trump era immigration policies that make it harder for immigrants to enter the country. They asked a judge to dismiss lawsuits against Trump for the forced clearing of Lafayette Square last summer amid the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, they've basically kicked the can down the road in releasing Trump's taxes to the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, yeah, so that that's pretty much uh, the summary of the massive things that are making people angry about the Garland DOJ. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, what we just mentioned there, this thing came up this morning that uh, Gregory Meeks, who is the the chair of the relevant committee, I can't remember which one it was, saying, you know, we're no we're not we're not trying to get the transcripts of that, you know, the the translator notes of the Helsinki summit back from 2018. And he was quoted to ABC saying, look, Biden's looking forward, not back, blah, 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 blah. Now, in that case, again, some of these there are there are nuances here. Um, they're not even nuances exactly. They're mechanical details that are important to keep in mind. Some of these things, the Biden administration's got the stuff. They can look at it whenever they want, and maybe they are. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. This Trump didn't take this stuff with him down to Mar-a-Lago, and they're not like trying to get them back. He has them. And then there are other cases where I think there is is some reasonable argument that, you know, they're trying to protect some precedents uh, that, that the new, you know, the new DOJ just doesn't turn against the, the previous president and kind of, you know, run, rake them over the coals. Uh, more than that, that you, you know, just to, to, to give people an example with this translator notes thing, I think any administration would be cautious, like, okay, we give you the translator notes next year, the House is in the control of Republicans, and they're saying, oh, give us your notes of your conversations when you met with the president of Honduras or something like that about immigration stuff. And Biden's going to say, dude, screw that, man. I'm the president. I can talk to formally. I don't have to tell you every last thing I said. So there's some stuff like that, but it's in toto, they are... Um, it's too much. There are ways to come at this... Uh, you cannot spend four years saying this stuff is a crisis of the state and of grave import and all this stuff. And then when you're in the driver's seat and you control the executive and the, leg, you know, the, the legislative branch and can kind of do whatever you want, just say, well, I mean, you know, you know let's, we got other fish to fry or something like that. That is just... Um, Politically, I don't think that cuts it. And, and I think that they are at best doing, eh, you know, okay on this accountability front. Um, and, you know, some of the, there was one other, 
There was one other of these cases where the administration is continuing to enforce something on the kind of the religious liberty, gender, uh, I, I don't rem- I don't remember the specifics, but in that general universe of stuff, and uh, the guy at Slate who does legal, you know, the legal uh, columnist there, made a point, and it sounded right to me, kind of like this wasn't an administrative decision. This is this is a law Congress passed. The DOJ can't just decide like, well, we're not going to enforce it now because we never liked that law in the first place. It doesn't work that way. You, the the DOJ has to. I mean. There's some flexibility over enforcement priorities, but some of these things are easy to grab out of context and make it seem like Trump, uh, Biden is going soft on Trump when it's really quite, it's not quite that. But again, there's a lot of these things and overall, eh, it's not great. Yeah. I mean, I think my problem is the arguments again, and you know, like you say, some of these cases have nuance. Um, I think I know the case you're talking about. And the point is kind of if the Biden uh, DOJ were to duck out, there's another party that wants to take over that case, which is a kind of conservative right wing outfit that would end up probably making things worse. But, you know, I think overall, Garland is kind of doing this thing where he's so eager to depoliticize the department and build back these norms that were shredded by Trump, which I think is it's noble in theory, but acting like Trump was just another president, I think is really dangerous because sweeping his stuff under the rug just kind of prepares us for the same situation the next time a bad actor gets into this role and can also kind of hijack the DOJ to do their own, you know, personal dirty work, basically. Um So I just think that the cases that bother me the most are the ones that entail deciding not to chase accountability for Trump. And politically, I get it. I understand that Democrats want more to run on in 2022 and that Biden will ultimately want more to run on than just we were kind of obsessed with, you know, going after Trump. We want to move forward, want to heal the country. I get that. But that just creates such a risk of not putting any safeguards in place to stop this kind of stuff from coming from happening again. And in some ways, it just it does remind me of how congressional Democrats tend to operate, where I know like I get that it's really scary to watch these norms being shredded. I think we've all felt that the past four years. But when you've got one side that insists on operating by the rules, whether it be, you know, something small like the filibuster or even a refusal to overturn the rulings of the Senate parliamentarian, you just you have one party that's so bound by these rules and these norms. And then you have the other party that doesn't and that will get whatever it wants even if it entails breaking those norms and rules. And that is so asymmetric. And I think it just creates this dynamic where Democrats, you know, plead with people, with voters to put them in power so they can stop this, so they can stop the destruction and and the running rampant. Um, And then they get into power and they want to go back to operating by the rules, even when the other team just simply isn't. And I think, you know, we're already seeing it's it's basically killed the Senate or almost has killed the Senate. This kind of refusal to run to run over the rules in service of democracy, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think what, what you know what they are trying to do is more than I think it it is more than you know nice aspirational thinking. It's it's very important to get back to those. I think the key though, and I think I'm basically agreeing with you, is that you cannot um, you need a more flexible, um, multi-dimensional approach here where you cannot just get back to the norms by pretending they were not violated and leaving in place the products of their violation. Right. And to a great extent, um, and this is tricky, in some of these cases, what you need to say is precisely because that was breaking the rules, what we do now will not be a precedent for every for everything a normal president does in the future because Trump was not a normal president. Now, that's that is that's easier said than done. You know, you don't necessarily control what is considered a president. Precedent, judges do, public opinion does. Um, but as you say, it does create this situation where, um, you know, Republicans burn the house down, and then Democrats get back in, and they're just trying to kind of re sort of rebuild the house, and 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 it, it it's asymmetric, and it's not. Um, in some ways, as you said, the key is that you really, you really get everything wrong if you start with the premise that Trump is a regular president, and so we want to treat him in the way that other regular presidents should and will want to be treated in the future. But he's not a regular president, um, and uh, you know, I do think there's some element of, you know, Merrick Garland is a you know, traditional main justice guy comes out of that culture. You kind of do it by the books. You maintain the the institutional privileges of the department, all that kind of stuff. All great. But, um, uh, you know, I, I don't want to use the wartime conciliary metaphor, but that outlook is not, I don't think is one that is capacious enough to get its hands around the current moment. So that's a little disappointing so it's far. It's also just Garland has been on the receiving end of this. He knows what it feels like. He should be a Supreme Court justice right now. And he's not, not because Republicans broke the rules, but because they broke the norms. He knows yeah. this is what they do. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. And, you know, I some people might be saying this is kind of too hasty. They've been in office for only, you know, six months. But the kind of thing all around when we're talking Senate, when we're talking DOJ, all of it, that is rubbing me the wrong way about the administration right now is just the lack of urgency in their tone, you know, just kind of, and I get it. You're new into the first term, you know, you've only been there for a few months, but Biden doesn't have the luxury that other presidents have had. Um, and I think even if you're just looking at, you know, climate change, we just don't, we don't have any time. And I think this kind of like, well, you know, let him get his, let him get his feet wet. Let him, let him figure out what he's going to go after. And what he, is, there's just not time. There's simply not time, especially yeah, before that, I mean, that, that, Yeah, that's a whole other, I mean, there's not time on climate in a whole different sense. Mm -hmm. On a lot of this other stuff, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, authoritarianism climate thing, right? I mean, that is just, I mean, that, that is not, that is a human creation, mm -hmm. but Time is is of the essence on that too exactly. for a very different set of reasons. So yeah, let's uh, put Kate and I down as not entirely happy 
with there you where go. the administration that's is. That's pretty really diplomatic, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so we have a bunch of your questions we want to get to today. So let's move over to there. Okay, these are from Julia. Uh, the first part of her question is, regarding efforts to break the filibuster, do you suppose Joe Manjin is being bribed or extorted by the GOP or affiliated sympathizers to oppose the Dems on the filibuster and other issues? Seems like he holds all the cards in negotiating with Republicans to either moderate their positions or he'll vote with the Democrats to end the filibuster. But every time he even hints at doing something with the filibuster, he quickly retreats and doubles down on preserving it. Could someone be offering him or his family lucrative jobs uh, or be threatening him with exposure of some sort. And then the second piece of her question is, with the Senate split 50-50, why does Joe Manchin hold all the cards when conceivably any senator holds the cards as well, including and especially on the GOP side? I know cinema is trying to play, but shouldn't we be trying to flip some wobbly Republicans like Murkowski or Cassidy to join the Democratic position? Why can't Schumer and the Dems work them over in the same manner McConnell's apparently doing with Manchin? I don't understand how all these other narcissists are happy to let one guy hog the limelight, which I love. I love that characterization so much. Well, I would I think basically we can dismiss the first proposition well, that he's either being extorted or paid off or something like that. I, I, I just think, I don't. Well, let me just go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I don't think that's the case. And more than that, I don't think that is required to explain where we are, mm -hmm. which is really, to me, the bigger thing. I don't think that's necessary to bring that into the mix. And, and when I say necessary, I don't mean like it's not appropriate. I mean, it's not, there's no question, at least from my point of view, that the available evidence does not allow us to answer. Yeah. This. Okay. So I think, you know, bribe or extort is a step further than we know or anything, you know, that's happening. But, you know, I just don't want to disregard the thought because there is a very robust lobbying effort specifically targeting Manchin right now. A lot of it's coming from the Koch Network. Um, Heritage Action has done uh, rallies in West Virginia. Um, and there was, you know, this kind of weird thing where the Chamber of Commerce started donating to Manchin again for the first time since 2012 just before he wrote his op-ed against S-1, uh, the For the People Act, which mirrored a lot of the chamber's talking points. Um, and the, it's not like these positions he's kind of taking now have been his lifelong instilled values. He has expressed support for filibuster reform in the past, and he has co-sponsored sweeping voting rights legislation as recently as 2019. So, you know, I, I take your point. I, I don't think we really you know, need to be like kind of skulking around looking for a scandal. but lobbying isn't a scandal that's part of washington life yeah no that 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 is in a different category and i think that's i think that is uh possible I, even that though i don't think that is driving this in in the sense that i don't think it's that there if there was some progressive group that could up the ante on whatever you know uh, uh coke and the chamber is doing that that would that's not i i just I don't think that I don't I just don't think that is the thing. Um, and that's not defending him. I just I, I would not look at that as the as the driving thing here. On the other point about, you know, it's 50-50. Everybody is the is the is the critical vote. And why aren't other Senate Democrats doing this? Or why can't you bring some Republicans over? I, I think, you know, first of all, um, on one level, everyone has the cards, but you got to be able, you got to be willing to use the cards, right? You can have the cards, hold all the cards or whatever your metaphor is, but you got to be willing to use them. And the, the real key here is that let's take, um, 
uh, Mark Warner in Virginia, you know, fairly moderate uh, Democratic senator, but definitely kind of in the middle of the caucus, you know, buys into most of the stuff. What is he going to do? Say, oh, I know I got to be convinced to, to repeal the Trump tax cuts. Well, he's going to get primaried in his state. So that, that's, there's no, there's his political reality is not one where there's, there's anything that really makes any sense for him to do. Or, or because again, he's from a blue state and he, he's in office because of a blue voter coalition. And with these Republicans, um, is, is Senator Cassidy going to get, you know, going to switch parties to Democrats and then, and then run again in Louisiana? I don't think so. I mean, so that doesn't make so. But so the key here is some of this, and I think this came up in our, in our off mic conversations, Kate, some of it is manager just a guy who loves to be the center of attention. Yeah. There's no question about that. But the key is that he is sitting in a Trump state. And that gives him both the need to get some distance from his party, but also the ability that, that it's not like it's not like he's going to do these things and say, man, I'm really kind of like reaping the whirlwind, you know, so in the wind for 2024 or whatever. No, no one's going to primary him. That's not going to go anywhere. So it, it, there's a reason why. I mean, you're not going to get any Republicans to switch parties. You're just not. And there's a reason why, even though I'm sure there's a bunch of, of egotists and, 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 and megalomaniacs in, in the Democratic caucus, just the, the, their, their hard political interests just are different. It's just different. There's no one in the same position that he's in. Yeah, I, I want to engage with the Republican switching part of the question a little bit. And I think on the, the narcissistic, narcissist point, I think, well, Julia's right that most, if not all, these senators do have pretty gigantic egos. I think you need that to run for public office. But I don't think a hunger for power always equates a hunger for attention. Um, and, you know, that's something we can see while cinema is, you know, arguably kind of being as big of an issue for Democrats as Manchin, but she never talks to reporters. Um, so I don't think that every single senator wants the the 40 reporter crowd that Manchin has right now. But on the party switching point, um, you know, just to get that out there, Murkowski said explicitly in January that she's not going to switch parties. She said, I can be very discouraged at times with things that go on in my own caucus, my own party, but I have absolutely no desire to move over to the Democratic side of the aisle. I can't be somebody that I'm not, um, which kind of struck me a bit because I, I understand kind of this desire from from Democrats to see one of these, you know, kind of quote unquote, reasonable Republicans uh, join. But the real question is, it's not just a desire for Murkowski or Cassidy to cross over and join the Democratic Party. It'd be a desire for them to cross over and then help blow up the filibuster, which would clear the way for a progressive legislative agenda that they almost assuredly disagree with every part of it. And would pay a massive cost politically right. whenever they're up for election again, as, yeah. as, the, as the turncoats that that brought us socialism, basically. And with someone like Lisa Murkowski, you know, her dad had that. I mean, she basically inherited that seat for her, from her dad. And she has subsequently won, I believe, three elections. So she definitely, you know, more than owns it in her own right. But I think her, I think after a brief period in which maybe that Mike Gravel guy, owned, someone owned, owned it, 
you know, held that seat briefly. But basically, that seat has been in that family's hands for like 40 years, maybe longer than 40 years. And um, they're, it's their Republicans. And she's got a great deal. You know, she got primaried and lost back in, I don't know, I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2012 or whenever. And she won as a write-in. So why does she need to switch? She kind of owns that seat in her own right, or not even through her party, right? So there's no pressure on her. She's got a pretty good deal. Yeah. And I think an important part of this to remember is while these people, you know, Cassidy more recently, but are kind of like the usual suspects of people who will join with Democrats, the things they join with Democrats with are not are hardly ever policy, you know, it's attempts to basically hold Trump and his administration accountable. And that's a different thrust. Which is frankly, frankly, what you should expect of them. Right. We shouldn't expect them to become liberals. That's ridiculous. They're not. They're Republicans. And but where where I think we collectively really what they owe us is when people talk about overthrowing elections, they that should not be a conservative policy issue. That's just, that's the republic. That's the whole thing. So in some ways, um, you know, Democrats are kind of unrealistic or even unfair. These aren't liberals. They're conservatives. They have a very different idea of how they, you know, how the country should run. And I do think some part of this question is probably informed by the last time that the Senate was evenly split in 2001, where Senator Jim Jeffords from Vermont switched from becoming a Republican to a Democrat and gave the Democrats the majority, albeit for a brief time. So, I mean, it can happen and it's happened before. But I think a key is you know, look at Vermont, look at kind of the political evolution of that state. And then we're looking, you know, in this example at Alaska and Louisiana, which are just not places where being a Democrat helps you right now. So maybe you could guess that that would happen in a state that was rapidly becoming blue, but, you know, not those areas. Well, you know, it also happened with the late Arlen Specter in, I guess, uh, 2009 or 10. I don't remember. He eventually lost when he ran again as a Democrat. But again, that is... We're a bit, that's a bit earlier in the history of polarization, and you still had, you know, uh, some Republican senators in states that were pretty, you know, pretty Democratic at the state, you know, at at the national level. Um, Pennsylvania, uh, certainly Vermont. You don't have those anymore, and so the logic of it is just not there. If anyone. The one you have there is Joe Manchin, right? Who logically should become a Republican if you think in just you know purely like aligning with your state um, uh, terms, and that's why you know as much as this guy drives me fucking crazy, don't waste time thinking about primarying him, and don't waste. I mean, the fact that he has not chosen to become a Republican tells me that he does not want to become a Republican, and that he is not a Republican because it would be so easy for him to become a Republican. He could do it and then and be reelected forever. So, you know, certain things are, I don't think, broadly speaking, I don't think we should look for nefarious explanations for what he is up to as much as he drives me crazy. And much of what he says makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Okay. So our next question is from Chris, who says, if the Republicans win the Senate with a slim margin and then the presidency in 2024, what do you think are the chances they would eliminate the filibuster. Were they discussing eliminating it in the 2016-2017 era? If they were discussing it, why didn't they do it? 
Um, and I think this, I like this question because this is something McConnell brags about on like at least a weekly basis at the moment that he was under pressure from Trump to blow up the filibuster, but he stood firm. He wouldn't do it, which that is technically true, but. But it's because we're. Trump didn't understand how the filibuster oh, works. Right. Yeah. But you got to remember, this is not some McConnell love of process or of saving norms. I mean, when the filibuster interfered with his legislative agenda, e.g. getting Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court in 2017, he blew up the part of the filibuster that requires a supermajority for Supreme Court nomination. I mean, the only reason he didn't torch it when they were in power is because they could pass their agenda without it. You know, they tried to gut Obamacare through reconciliation, didn't work, did the tax cuts through reconciliation instead. You know, biggest priorities, cutting taxes, shrinking government spending can be done through reconciliation. And then otherwise, all they want to do is uh, get judges on the on the various benches, which they can do without a supermajority. This is exactly the point. I, I don't think they will necessarily do it, but that is because structurally, as Kate just said, Republicans don't need to. The things that they want all go through on 50 votes. They don't, and, and to that point, they couldn't get it done on Obamacare, but that was because they couldn't get 50 votes. So I actually don't expect them to. If in, in some ways, if anything, it's a bit of an advantage to them because I, I think, you know, there are some uh, uh, Republicans who say, hey, we'll, we'll ban abortion nationwide or we'll do this or we'll do that. They don't want to do that. It's not, it's not, it's not the filibuster stopping that. They don't want to do that because it's, it's deadly for them politically. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I don't think they will because they don't need to. Right. Everything they want, they can do on 50 votes. So the filibuster affects the two parties very differently. Right. So don't buy McConnell when he's uh, trying yeah. to give himself credit for being a nice norm preserver. McConnell. Okay. And now we have one last question. Um, are there rules about bringing the same issue to the vote over and over in the Senate? It seems to me that Schumer should be forcing the Republicans to repeatedly filibuster the January 6th commission every time something new and damning comes out, like the recent committee report. Call another vote, force them to filibuster. Is there a reason this wouldn't be a good idea? And this is from Ellen. Um, so I actually connected with uh, Sarah Binder, who's a political science professor at GW and is a fellow at Brookings this morning about this question. So this was a tactic that was used a lot by Harry Reid, um, who would vote no on nominees or legislation that he supported. Um, and it's this kind of procedural trick where someone from the, you know, quote unquote, winning side of the cloture vote or someone who voted to uphold the filibuster against this person or this legislation, um, they can file what's called a motion to reconsider. The idea behind it being that uh, the senator who initially voted for cloture is like changing their mind and wants to bring it up for another vote. Uh, anyone on the winning side of the cloture can do that, but it's normally the majority leader who takes that role. Um, so with, you know, the with the um, January 6th commission, that's something that Schumer could do. He could actually switch to the side of the Republicans file a motion to reconsider, bring it up later, which is something he's alluded to in his speeches, saying that he could bring it up now, again. Let, let me ask you this, because mm -hmm. this does come back to the, the rules are only the rules. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about ditching the filibuster, you can just change the rules, right. 50 votes. So on that point, I guess they're absent this idea that someone wants to change their mind. There is a rule. You can't just keep bringing it up and over and over and over again. Yeah. It's so like that's not what germane I, or something. That's like what I that. checked with. Um, Sarah Binder about. And she told me, uh, as under the current rules, only one motion to reconsider is allowed. So you can use this trick to get one bonus vote, but that's all as of now. But like you say, Senate determines its own rules. 
Well, I would, I would assume also, I would assume that if you want to push it, there are ways to say, oh, that was S1, the democracy bill. This is S5, the we love voting bill. Right. And, and you know, like I get the sense that if you wanted to, you could nudge this. Um, it's just kind of not what is not what is done. But I think we have seen that um, you need to kind of push the envelope a bit. Um, and I'm, you know, on a lot of fronts, I don't think they are. I agree with that broadly, even though with this idea of kind of making Republicans keep voting down the committee or the commission, I am not sure it would be as effective as it There, sounds. I agree with you. Yeah. It, the idea that they're sweating bullets every time they have to, they really don't give a shit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more to me, I would say like if something did change and you thought you might have another shot at it, bring it up again. Right. Don't feel like, oh, got to wait till the next Congress, blah, 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 blah. But I agree with you. And I and I suspect, unfortunately, that even on the Democratic side, you have a lot of Democrats who are saying, dude, don't put us through. Like, they're, they're already filibustering it. They don't give a shit. Yeah. Don't waste our time. I mean, basically. and that's something when I was kind of bobbing around the hill last week, I was asking senators what their kind of preferred path forward specifically on the commission was. And a lot of them said, well, you know, Schumer uh, has said he might bring into a vote again. And I was like, okay, great. So who are the other Republicans that you can get? And no, no one, you know, nobody had any names. Of course they don't. We've seen that it's almost impossible to get 10 Republicans to do anything. I mean, at this point, almost literally impossible. Yep. Unless it's something <laughs> that is just not considered, you know, a, a having, having any uh, partisan focus. Well, all right. Le, uh, let me remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. Reminders, send us questions, send us your theme song competition uh, entries, both at talk at TalkingPointsMemo.com. We've got a bunch of both and they are all wonderful. Cool. All right. All right. Thanks. Later, folks.